Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Thank you, Jessica, for reading the scripture passage for us this morning. You know, with the recent killing of George Floyd and the protests and division that has resulted, really erupted in our nation, it shed fresh light on a problem that is as old as humanity is. It's shedding fresh light on the fact that conflict and hatred and even violence are as much a part of who we are as human beings as anything else. It's deeply woven into the fabric of us. Think about this. Adam and Eve's first kid murdered their second kid. I mean, we were not on the planet very long before hatred, violence, conflict, envy, those things just scarred humanity and even cost someone his life. I think we all know that this isn't how things are supposed to be, but it is how they are. And the struggle is real, and I don't say that ironically. I know that's a thing that people say these days ironically, but the struggle of humanity, of just being alive on this planet, trying to share life, survive with other people, it's real. Why are things like this? Why are things the way they are? And what are we supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to cope? How, how are we supposed to respond just as human beings, but especially, and because I am a pastor, I want to address how do we respond and how do we process this as Christ followers? This morning, I want to open up um, Ephesians 6.10 through 13 with you, and uh, I want to look at it for some insights into how to understand the answers to those questions. We're not going to be able to get very, very far because we only have a limited time, but maybe we can get the conversation started, and maybe this will get us thinking about all that's happening from a slightly different perspective. I was just as horrified as everyone else when I forced myself to watch that video of the killing of George Floyd. It was not easy to watch a man kneel on the neck of another man for a full eight minutes and 46 seconds. And probably like most of you, as I'm watching that video, a question is shouting inside my mind. Why would anyone do something like that to another person? How is such a thing possible? From where does an act like that come? A choice or even an attitude that drives it. Where does that come from? Now, I think there's no shortage of answers being offered today um, to that question. Why this happens? What is causing it? What are the structures and systems and all of that? And, and I think many of those answers point to things that are true, but I don't believe most of the answers I'm hearing get to the full truth. See, how we answer that question, why would something like this happen? How can anyone do something like this to their fellow human being? The way we answer that question is very, very important because it points to what we believe is at the root of the human struggle, at the root of these kinds of things that happen. And it will also define for us the battle laid out before us. If we're going to do something to respond, how we answer that question frames what kind of war we believe we're supposed to be fighting. In verse 12 of our passage, 
Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says something really provocative. He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And yet, when I look at the things that are ripping our world apart, there is such a clear flesh and blood component to those struggles. In fact, Paul's writing these words from a Roman prison, and he's there because of the abuse of authority by unjust rulers and leaders that are very flesh and blood, people who are out to get him and to squash the new spiritual religious movement he is a part of. He has real chains and real bars holding him in, and yet he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we need to unpack what could he possibly mean by that? How can our struggle not be against flesh and blood when the flesh and blood dynamics or dimensions of our struggle are so evident to our eyes? Well, these words occur in a section of Ephesians where Paul is very carefully laying out some distinctions between Christians and the rest of the world. And his point is not that we're somehow superior or better, but he says we are supposed to engage in social constructs and relationships with the world around us in ways that are substantively different than everyone else. That the way we walk through the world, the way that we interact with other people, don't follow the scripts that everyone else follows, but we do things very differently. And what Paul is trying to say is that extends even to the way that we experience and we engage in the struggle of human life on earth. He says, yes, there is a flesh and blood struggle, but it's not our struggle. And we have to be careful how we understand that because the rest of the New Testament, including many of the writings of Paul, indicate that it's not, it doesn't mean we are passive and non-participating in the things of the world. Civic action, activism, those things are part of what the church ought to be involved in at some level for sure. We should be engaging our world. We should be loving our world in that sense, the way that God so loved the world. We shouldn't live in the world as if it has nothing to do with us because we are still a part of it. We reside here. We have responsibility for our fellow man, for the things that happen around us. And so he doesn't mean that those flesh and blood dimensions of the struggle, of the conflict, are not real and not relevant. But what he says is there is another layer of the struggle that the rest of the world cannot engage and cannot see because they don't acknowledge it. And that is where the focus of our struggle can and should be. It's where we should focus the fight that we bring into the struggle of humanity. Please hear me correctly. We're not saying here that we should not participate in the kinds of things that we should be participating in, real action, real engagement. Please don't ever hear me or the scriptures saying anything like that. But what we're saying is that we as Christians have the privilege and responsibility of seeing and engaging in a whole other level of the struggle. And that is our burden to bear because so many others don't even realize or acknowledge that it exists. 
These dark forces, supernatural spiritual forces that are at work in the world, remind us that there is a darkness inside of us and there is a darkness in our universe that goes way beyond economy and sociology and anthropology. There are things that we can explain and understand through analyzing the flesh and blood world, but there's a whole other dimension of reality and what it means to be a human being that goes deeper than those things. The world can only struggle within itself, within the world. But God has lifted us to a place where we know we can see another dimension of life and reality that is just as real as what I can touch and feel. And what he says to us is it's at that level that our real struggle has to be engaged as well. This is not an either-or thing. It's a both-and. We should be engaged in the battles of the world, but we should also be engaged at a whole other level that the rest of our human beings around us cannot fight alongside with us. In verse 11, Paul writes, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Several times in the short passage, we see that phrase, stand or take your stand. This is military language. And the picture it paints is of a line of soldiers with shields up in a defensive posture, just holding a line against an enemy onslaught and repelling that attack. And it, it, it describes an enemy that is relentless in his attack against us. There's no rest. It's just constant. And so the, the call again and again in this very military um, language-dominated text is, take your stand, hold the line, because the enemy arrayed against you is not going to give you any rest. I really believe that no attempt to serve and honor God or work towards human flourishing will ever happen without opposition from the dark supernatural spiritual forces that are aligned against God and against us. I believe that God's enemy hates God, and he hates all that God loves. He hates the agenda of God. He hates the picture of life and of, of the way the universe is supposed to be. This idea that we carry this beautiful theological concept called shalom, real peace, the way things are supposed to be, the way people are supposed to treat each other, the way that we're supposed to view God, the way that we're supposed to experience life. God, the enemy of God hates that picture, and he will try to destroy it at every opportunity. Anything we do or attempt to do to honor God, to make God visible in the world, or to work for human flourishing, he will come against over and over and over, so that the good that we want to see in the world never comes without cost. It's always opposed. Leave things alone, things will always just tend to get worse. Almost nothing in the universe gets better with neglect, with passivity. Every good thing, whether it's cleaning your house, growing a garden, raising a family, building a business, stop for a second, and the thing just rolls right back down the hill. That's the nature. And maybe in physics you could compare it to the law of entropy. I don't know. But the truth is everything good is opposed. And we will have to learn how to fight the right way 
whenever we attempt to bring God's good into this world. If you look at verse 11 again, it characterizes the devil's attacks as schemes. It says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. This might be a silly illustration, but um, it, it kind of helped me think about this. I recently watched a video, uh, it's a clip from the Steve Harvey show, and he had a professional pickpocket named Bob Arno come on, and he did all these little tricks where he t- took things from audience members and all that. It's pretty amazing the, the way a, a good pickpocket could just take a watch or a wallet right off of you. And then he tells Steve Harvey, I'm going to take something from you. So he gave him fair warning to be on his alert, to be really hypervigilant. And after doing all that, he proceeded to take the necktie from around Steve Harvey's neck while he was on stage in front of a live audience. I, I was just floored watching it because... Steve Harvey, the whole time, is like, I'm watching you, I'm watching you. He, he thinks he's being vigilant. But the guy still succeeded in taking the tie from around his neck. Now, how did he do that? The key to being a pickpocket is entirely like the rest of the magic. It's misdirection. It's getting the person to focus on one place where something is happening so that he's not paying attention to another place where the real thing is happening. So it isn't as if it's just illusion. Misdirection only works because something really is happening. If you watch a pickpocket, he'll be touching you here, here. He's constantly giving you things to pay attention to, like, why are you grabbing my arm? Why are you touching my wrist? But all the while, the thing you're looking at is happening. It's real, but it's not where the real action is. And while you're focusing on your wrist, hoping he's not taking your watch, his hand is pulling your wallet right out of your back pocket. That's the way it works. Misdirection is one of the easiest ways to defeat a person even while they are being watchful. I share that because in every conflict, especially in in times like today when the battle lines seem so clearly drawn between tribes of human beings, groupings of people, it's so easy to see the human versus human dimension of conflict. It's very easy to define where the sides are, who is versus who, who is aligned against who. Those things are very easy to see right now. And I would say in most human conflict, it's really easy to discern. I'm actually having a fight with you. This issue is about you and me, about me and him, me and her. And that's the part that is very, very obvious and self-evident. And I believe Satan would love it if that's all we ever focused on is that every conflict in the world is a person-versus-person dynamic. Now, I'm not suggesting that that level of the conflict isn't real. And, And I'm not suggesting that it's not important. We have to work and act and live in that dimension as well as a spiritual. We don't have the option to check out of either one of those things. But while the human dimension is so clear to see the spiritual dimension very often goes completely neglected, unseen, unacknowledged. Sometimes we just see the people versus people or what's on the surface rather than what's really lying beneath the surface of a struggle. At its core, spiritual battle is about the rejection of God's loving and righteous authority over human beings, over any being, really. I mean, it's God who has the right to have authority over all that He has made. And we should be so thankful that the authority of God 
comes from one who is loving and just and righteous. So that if God could fully control every living being, what would result is perfection and shalom, real peace. No one would kill someone else. No one would steal what doesn't belong to them or hurt anyone else or say things or judge them. Those kinds of things which we hate in this world wouldn't exist under the perfect rule of God's loving and righteous and just authority. And at its heart, spiritual battle arises from the rejection of God's authority. And it's what theologians simply call sin. Sin at its core is the rejection of God's loving and righteous authority over us. Things like racism and injustice and hatred are real problems. They are sin. But underlying those sins is the fundamental sin of the rejection of God and His loving and righteous authority. The reason these kinds of things exist at all is because humanity at our hearts will always struggle with wanting to shed and reject God's loving, righteous authority. Structures and systems are corrupt because the people who build them and administer them are corrupt. The people who live within them, tolerate them, benefit from them are corrupt. I think it's not inappropriate to describe a system or structure as unjust, but they are only unjust or corrupt because the people involved in them are that way. And I'm not excluding us as Christians from that. Activism can do a lot. Social action can do a lot. It can work to reform or restrain those corrupt systems and structures, even can restrain corrupt individuals. We can do a lot to make penalties higher, to do training and education so that people do fewer bad things, or when they do it, the cost is so high they will be restrained in what they do. But only the saving work of Jesus can actually redeem and transform the heart that lies beneath. There is the way I conduct myself as a good citizen or someone who wants to avoid penalty, and there is the person, the being, who I am underneath all of that. As an example, think about this. You can pass hate crime legislation that stiffens the penalty for acting out of bigotry and hatred. I think we should do those things. I think laws like that should exist on the books because we want people who behave this way to think twice about doing that in a society they share with other people. But while you can do that kind of thing, enact that kind of legislation, in order to to restrain human behavior, you cannot, through laws or social action, remove the hatred from the human heart. There is a limit to what we can do. And there is a realm that only God Himself can operate in if we don't avail ourselves of the supernatural heavenly armaments as we engage in spiritual battle we're just not going to win there's only so far we're going to get and the fight that we have before us i think is a noble and worthy fight but i i say these words not to take us out of the fight but to bring us to the fight fully armed with everything which god has given us distinctively as his children and his followers. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, Paul says something interesting that builds on what we're saying here. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Just as conventional tactics and weapons don't work against guerrilla warfare, worldly weapons will not help us win spiritual battles. That doesn't mean they're without value. Worldly weapons can accomplish a lot, but they are powerless against spiritual strongholds. And I think it's, it's the right way for us to think about this, that we should fight with worldly weapons when what we're trying to accomplish are worldly ends. There is a lot that we can do, but there is a level of this fight that we owe it to God and to humanity to fight at, and that cannot be, be done with the weapons of the world. You can accomplish a lot with worldly weapons. You can enact laws. You can elect leaders. You can raise awareness. You can even raise money. I think it honors God when we do all those things. But we as Christ followers can contribute something to the fight that the rest of the world cannot. We can take up weapons that have divine power. It's like bringing the biggest gun to a a knife fight or a fight being waged with sticks and stones. When we bring the power of God into a struggle, something profound can happen. You know, right now, there is this beautiful spirit of human collaboration that you can feel in the air. This moment feels different than many past moments in that there is a level of coming together, of voices from very different corners of humanity joining together to cry out for things that are right. I believe that we, as God's people, should add our voices to that chorus. But I also want you to be aware that there is, along with that, a very strong spirit of humanism that is very visible today. And there's, that, that's a, a very complex term, but really to distill it down, what I mean by that is there is this idea so alive today in our culture that the power to save the world lies entirely within us. And when you say something like that today, everyone just kind of goes, yeah, that's right, that we can save the world. The power to change everything lies within you. And most people in our world hear that and say, you're absolutely right. Now, I, 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 wanna be, I don't want to be overly critical of that. I understand completely what they're saying is passivity changes nothing. If you're going to sideline yourself, don't expect to be a part of anything that changes. But I want you to know that the ideas of humanism, that the, the savior of the world is us, that we are the hope for the future, that is not a song we can join the world in singing as the followers of Jesus. We are a people who have a Savior, and the Savior is not us. I don't believe that we can join the world in the humanism that prevails today, but we ought to join the world in human unity to say with the voices of others, we want those things too. We cry out for justice, for equality, for fairness, for kindness, for civility. We should stand for those things. But that does not mean that we should uncritically accept the humanism that is so evident 
all over the world today. In fact, when we do accept that, it's not solidarity with the world, it's robbing the world of that distinctive that we can bring to the fight. In verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. What does that mean? I, I wrestled with this. What, practically speaking, how can I, a human being, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power? Well, I think for a start, it means that I have to acknowledge the limitations of my power and of human power in general. There's so much that we can do, but there's only so much that we can do. Did you get that? There is a lot we can do. And God has given us that dignity, the power of agency, that as human beings, if we put our minds to it and we serve Him, there is so much we can accomplish. But there is only so much we can accomplish. We can work our hardest and join hands together and still only push things so far. There are strongholds that cannot be broken by human will and human unity. When we finally come to grips with our weakness and our limitations, only then are we prepared to lay down worldly weapons and pick up heavenly weapons. And the greatest heavenly weapon, I truly believe, is prayer. And it's the weakest dimension of Christianity that I see today. In, in the church, but also in my life. I think this is the part of Christianity that modern Christians struggle the most with, is to recognize the amazing power that lies in prayer. And I'm not talking about prayer as mantra, prayer as ceremony, or as religious duty. But I'm talking about the kind of prayer that begins with truly acknowledging that there are huge limits on what we as human beings can do. And as we lay down um, our pride, and recognize our limits. And then we realize that who stands over us is a limitless, infinite, almighty God. We begin to turn to Him. That doesn't mean we ever stop doing the work we're called to do, but we stop trusting in our work to be the, the power that changes everything. The kind of prayer that honors God is the prayer that acknowledges He is able to do what we are not able to do. And I really believe that this is the level of the fight that we need to bring to our world today. We can't just join everyone else in shouting the same chants and believing that somehow by us working so hard, everything will get better. God has revealed more to us than that. And so let's, yes, continue to engage. Last Sunday, I issued a call to action in response to God's call to be just people and build a just society. I still stand by that call to action. Nothing I've said this morning dampens that call to action. We should wake up. We should speak up. We should rise up. All those things we should do. But as we do them, let's not be seduced by the idea that we are the hope of the world. Let's not be seduced by this idea that the only battles to fight are black versus white or cop versus citizen or one person versus another. Those are dimensions of the conflict I see happening around us. But the real heart of our conflict is between God's good and the darkness that is everywhere inside of us and around us. That's the real fight. That's the real struggle that we are engaged in.
and we can bring God's power to bear. That's the great gift we offer to this fight. I'm glad that more and more the world around us is seeing the church rouse itself from sleep and from passivity. And we still have a very long way to go. I hope we get there in engaging with the world through the love of Jesus Christ. But we don't fight as the world fights. And we're not fighting the battle at the same level that the world fights. So even as we swing the swords alongside, we know that there's a whole other dimension that, that there has to be victory in. That's our great hope. You know, this whole world one day will pass away and be recreated. But the things that will remain are the souls of humanity and the glory of God. That's what we're fighting for. Even if we make this fleshly world a utopia, which is really an impossibility, apart from that greater battle for God's dominion over human beings, for Him to have His saving work, all the other things that we win, the victories that we gain, are not worth very much. So I I charge you, Harvest Community Church, to engage the fight, to be good citizens, to be good human beings, to labor alongside your fellow man. But I also charge you, Harvest Community Church, as the followers of Jesus, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, to see the other deeper dimension of the struggle and join that fight with all your heart, to lay down worldly weapons and to take up heavenly weapons. Let's sing a song together. It's called The Way, and it reminds us that battles and struggles are a part of this life, but this song beautifully points our attention towards Jesus Christ, who alone fights the battles with us and for us, and is the way, the truth, and the life. After we sing that song, I'll be back to give you the benediction and then dismiss you for breakout rooms. The battle lines are very clearly being drawn in our world. But may God open the eyes of your heart to see that there's a whole other battle raging that has far-reaching consequences for us and the people around us. We can join the world in its fight, but we must transcend that fight. So may God call you into the invisible war that is raging all around the very obvious conflicts. May He call you to lay down worldly weapons and pick up heavenly ones charged with divine power so that we can bring a a level to this fight that the world outside cannot. May this be our greatest contribution to the struggles around us is that we bring God and His might onto the battlefield through our faithfulness, our submission, and our prayers. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.